Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast of Big History from our 2018 programme. Professor David Christian can navigate our complex 13.7 billion year history in just under 18 minutes. Since the 1980s, the US-born, Australian-based scholar of Russian history has promulgated the idea of big history, a meta-discipline which takes a wide-angle, multidisciplinary approach to history. It has been championed by philanthropist Bill Gates, among others, is now being taught in schools. Christian's new book, Origin Story, A Big History of Everything, acts as a starting point for understanding the world from go to woe. He sets out his all-encompassing approach in conversation with Garant Martin. This session is supported by our Platinum Bold patrons, Francis and Bill Bell. We hope you enjoy it. David, can I just talk a little bit about the origin of big history? Um, because I, I noticed when I was reading up about it, it was in the late 1980s, um, and particularly around 1989, and the big change that took place with the Berlin Wall. And of course, Mr. Fukuyama described it, saying that history was over. That's right. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, for, for, for me, really, history, uh, big history began with the idea of a history of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I became increasing, I taught Russian and, and, and Soviet history for many years at Macquarie University in Sydney. And I became more and more concerned with the idea that in universities and educational institutions everywhere in the world, we still predominantly teach national histories. And I thought in a world with nuclear weapons and a growing number of problems that cannot be solved nation by nation, this is kind of crazy. And we really ought to be teaching in our schools and universities the history of humanity. In other words, trying to create a story that has all the sort of grandeur uh, and the sense of community of national histories, but applies to humans as a whole. You know, so that young people can, can think of themselves as humans. And, and the fact we don't teach that seems very strange. So I started thinking, um, uh, mid-career, many of my colleagues thought I was having a kind of breakdown or a mid, mid-career crisis as an academic. But I started thinking, how would you do that? And I thought, well, so first you're going to have to teach not just about literate societies. You're going to have to teach about Paleolithic societies. You're going to have to go back 200,000 years. And then I thought, yeah, but you can't just suddenly start, kaboom, 200,000 years ago. You, 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 you actually have to talk about evolution. So I thought, yikes, now I'm talking about biology, you know. So uh, I thought, and then I thought, yeah, but to do the evolution of humans properly, you have to do the evolution of, 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 of the great apes, of primates, and back and back and back. So, so I found myself being pushed back and back and back to the origins of life on Earth. And then I thought to talk about that, you have to talk about geology, the origins of planet Earth. You have to talk about planet formation, stars, and back and back. And then I realized there's a starting point, which is the Big Bang. So I thought it looks as if to teach the history of humanity properly you have to teach the history of the universe. And then I discovered that H.G. Wells had been through exactly the same trajectory. He wrote his outline of history, which was a sort of universal history just after World War I. And he wrote it in response to the carnage of World War I. He said, if we go on teaching national histories, we simply guarantee more carnage like this in the future. And he said, we need to teach the history of humanity. And very quickly he realized that meant teaching the history of the universe. But the difference is that the science since H.G. Wells' time has developed so vastly that now we can tell that story with a sort of precision and rigor that was impossible when H.G. Wells told it. And above all, we have dates, which he didn't have. Um, I, I read your being a well. I read your book as a Welshman, right? Um, and the experience I had of reading your book was a bit like when Wells played the All Blacks for me. Um, sorry, sorry, guys. It's, when it, it was a bit like when experience as a Welshman is rather like experience it, um, watching Wells play the All Blacks, because you start off with a huge amount of emotion and confidence and energy, and determination and excitement, and and then a few things happen. Um, and then you finish the story with your head in the hands, um, wondering where it all went wrong, really. Um, and I, I was asking, is this an optimistic or a pessimistic book? I hope it's an optimistic book. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that as I, 
as I was teaching this, and I've been teaching courses like this now for 30 years, um, and the story slowly crystallized in my mind. I think it was the second year we taught it, and we hadn't a clue what we were doing. I invited colleagues from astronomy and biology and geology, and they all gave their lectures, um, but the lectures didn't really fit together. Um, and then we ended the course today, more or less on the day of the final exam for the course. And one wonderful student came up to me afterwards and said, you can't leave us. She had loved the course, but she said, you can't leave us on a cliff like this. You have to talk about the future. So I began, from then on, I did something which most historians swear they'll never do, which is I started giving lectures on the future. Because I felt the momentum is so mm. huge. You have to help students think about the future. And then at first, my lectures were pretty bleak. I started reading a lot of stuff about climate change and declining biodiversity. But I remember, I remember my son once saying to me, Dad, when you go on like this, I feel like getting drunk. <laughs> and I thought, this is not good. So from then on, I took a vow that I was going to be an optimist. Uh, for the simple reason, it's not, not, that, not that I was deliberately telling a Pollyanna story, mm -hmm. but the stories about the possibility that we could sort these problems if we can get the political technology right, we don't know that's wrong. Now, that's the possibility we have to hang on to, that we can solve these problems, and a younger generation can solve them. So the cru one of the crucial tools in dealing with the big global challenges we face is actually optimism. Mm -hmm. And that means looking for better futures, and then trying to figure out how do we get there. So that's one of the things, in a very superficial way, that the final chapter tries to do. Now, it ends, the book ends by talking about the end of the universe. And with gazillions and gazillions and gazillions of years in the future, it's all going to break down. We, we, we know that. Entropy will win. Entropy is the villain of the novel, of course. Entropy will win. And I, I'm, I'm still amazed that some people say, oh, this is so pessimistic. <laughs> but I think, no, no, we'll be off. You know, we yeah. won't be around. And in the meantime, you know, this is the universe that can spin these incredibly exotic stories and uh, create beautiful things. That's the universe we live in. So I hope it is an optimistic story. Excellent. Um, thank you. So the, the essential thesis behind it is you've got sort of eight stages or eight thresholds that the universe has gone through uh, since the Big Bang to here we are today. Um, what did you, why did you arrive on sort of eight thresholds and what was the thinking behind it, the methodology? Yeah, look, eight, eight's a bit arbitrary. I mean, I've been teaching it for years. Mm -hmm. One of the beautiful things that happened was that, that at first... I really didn't know that there was a story there. It was, it was a bit of a mess, you know. But what kept me going was that students loved it. Um, so they loved the, the, the project of putting it all together. And then gradually the story came together. And I, I taught it in San Diego, and uh, I had students who were very fixated on the final exams. So they eventually bullied me into giving a final lecture, which was exam prep. So I started preparing these lectures, which were, you know, an hour-long lecture preparing you for an exam on the history of 13.8 billion years. So, uh, so I thought it might help to break this into a manageable number of chapters. And then actually the idea fell into place um, that the, the, the plot line of the story is really that the early universe was very simple. And gradually, and often quite suddenly, more complex things have appeared. And then complexity is built on complexity until you get our world. So this is very much about us. And then I realized that it might help to focus on a small number of those turning points at which new, something new, brand new, appears. Eight seemed about right. Um, I mean, we could quarrel about that. It's, it's, it's not a very interesting quarrel. I, you know, you could add nine, ten, twenty. But eight feels about right. It, it, it's, like, it's, it's, it's a good organizational structure. And it seems to work pretty well, so I've stayed with that structure. And behind that, there seem to be, like, I guess, like all complex systems, there are some simple rules. And I guess it's, for me, what I picked up on each stage, what sat behind it were the two laws of thermodynamics and the, the, particularly the entropy tax, yeah. And, and also um, the impact of complexity yeah. and how, how, how those three things interplay. 
I think one of the fascinating things, as I said, when I first began doing this, it seemed completely daft. Um, I, I just thought it'd be fun. And God bless my colleagues, they, they let me have a go at it, which was a huge risk. Um, so gradually over the years, uh, you know, a, a plot line did emerge. But one of the fascinating things moving across multiple disciplines is I realized that each discipline has its own jargon. So in the first year, uh, geologists would talk about metamorphic rocks, and my first year history students are scratching their heads and thinking, what the hell is that? Uh, or the astronomers would talk about you know, gamma rays. Um, and so one of the really interesting things is looking for concepts or words that work across all the disciplines, from cosmology right across to human history, and even to thinking about the future. So I think over the years, we've found a number of concepts that are present in all the disciplines. Sometimes they use different words, but they actually hold the story together. And to some extent, we've had to invent our own terminology. Thresholds is one of them. But I eventually realized there was no avoiding the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Um, I, 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 and I've struggled with these over the years. I go back and back and back to them. And each time it's like, like relativity. I struggle with relativity. And I think, got it. You know, I read Brian Cox and I think, got it. And then a week later, I think, no, I don't have it. <laughs> but the, the, the first and second law of thermodynamics actually, I think, are manageable, and they are there all the time at every point. There's a quote I use at the beginning, which is from Joseph Campbell. Um, I, I, I won't try and dig it out, but basically it's a quote about Shiva. Uh, and the energy of the dance is the first law. There's a certain amount of energy, capacity to do things or change things that appears in that Big Bang. The second thing is the forms of the dance. The forms of the dance change endlessly, and eventually just the energy will be all, all that survives. So that's a great way of thinking about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Forms appear like, I don't know, foam on ocean waves. We are forms like that. So the story is very much about how these forms appear, but we also know eventually they will disappear. And that's the second law of thermodynamics at work. And that's entropy um, at work, which gives us a fascinating plot line, because how can you get a world as staggeringly complex as, as this um, in a universe in which Entropy is so powerful, and that's really one of the, the central plot lines. So at each threshold, we have to ask how this thing was maneuvered, how it was handled. And um, this is a bit depressing, but I, I think the simplest way of describing it is to say that entropy is always there in the background, pulling the strings. Because whenever you create something really complex, the amount of waste, the amount of wasted energy is vast. So entropy knows that complex things are doing entropy's work of eventually breaking down everything complex, everything interesting, everything exotic, everything beautiful. So entropy loves it when it sees something complex. So I talk in the book about entropy taxes. Mm. Every complex thing pays sort of taxes to entropy in the form of extra energy. And uh, and also, I think it, those two things, energy and information, or information creating more energy, is, I guess, the way they earn the money to pay the entropy tax. Because I was really taken by your quote from Richard Dawkins about saying the most important thing is actually information, not anything else in, in every organism. Yeah. Information is um, one of the ideas. I mean, I've, I've sort of told this story before in different versions, in, in, in classes, in an earlier book, Maps of Time. Information is one of the ideas that's, that's forced its way into this, mm -hmm. into this book. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time, it's one of those words, like complexity, that floats across disciplines and gets used in slightly different ways. There's no perfect definition. And eventually I, I, I began realizing that you, you can't talk about living things without information. You certainly can't talk about humans without talking about information. So how does information enter the story? And I actually think there's a quite simple route. The universe begins in the Big Bang. 
within a split second, within a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. This is not just chaotic energy. There are rules. There are energies broken up into different things. Gravity has rules. It always pulls thing to get things together with a certain strength. The electromagnetic force has rules. It has positive and negative and so on. So those rules exist from the beginning. And they ensure that the universe will be steered down certain pathways. So the universe is never going to be just a mess. There's always the possibility of complex things. So that's the first crucial thing. The rules aren't yet information. Um, many physicists talk about information as if it's embedded in the universe. Personally, I think that's a kind of slightly misleading use of the word information, because a common sense use of information implies that there are rules that are read by a reader. So it occurred to me that information exists when you have entities that need to know about what's going on around them. Local, local information, and that's living things. Rocks don't need to know what's going on. They're just going to tumble along. You know, living things, bacteria need them. So all living things have to have mechanisms that allow them to detect something about their local environment. These are the local rules. And that's where information comes in, in the common sense form of rules that are detected and used by some entity. So entity is crucial to life. And one more thing is bacteria read, you know, it's more acidic there. It's more alkali here. Okay, flagella, get waving and move that way. Um, but as living organisms get compli more complicated, the amount of information they need about in their environment grows. So, that the, so do their nervous systems. And that turned out to be a very helpful way of thinking about humans and what makes us so weird and so striking on a scale of four billion years, which is the lifetime of planet Earth, because we use information with a virtuosity and on a scale that no other living organism in four billion years could match. Sorry, I've wandered a bit beyond, beyond your question. So if there are common laws, do you think there are sort of there are common, common lessons to learn? Is there a common... If you have common laws, entropy and etc. Are there any common lessons from each of the thresholds we can learn? Um, there are, so there seem to be some general principles. Um, I, I think Big History is very much a, a work in progress. I think the project of looking for rules that run all across the disciplines, from cosmology, from physics, to chemistry, to biology, to human history to cultural history is, is a very new one. But I think we can begin to see some of them. I mean, one is about complexity. When you see the early universe had no stars, then suddenly stars pop up. Now it's a different place. Stars are magical. They're generating light. They create differences in, in, in pressure and temperature and so on. They light up the universe. So each threshold, something new appears. Now, what's going on here? Is this magical? Uh, can we, how can we deal with this rationally? Well, again, I think um, there's probably a fairly simple way of thinking about it, which is that things that already existed have been arranged in a new way that creates new emergent properties that didn't exist before. I mean, it's like a pattern. You arrange things in a certain way, and there's a new pattern. So this is happening over and over again. So emergence is one of the rules we see each time things that had not existed, qualities that had not existed before emerge. And, and it, it's like watching a baby being born. It's magical each time it happens. A second rule seems to be that energy flows are involved. If you see something new appear, look for the energy flows. And almost certainly, this is not absolute, absolutely certain, but more complex things involve denser, more concentrated flows of energy. There's a, there's a physicist, uh, uh, astronomer, Eric Chason, who's taught astronomers' versions of big history for many years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he argues this, that if you try to measure the density of energy flows in the sun and the density of energy flows in modern human society, it's about a million times greater in modern human society. 
Now, exactly what we're measuring is not absolutely clear, but there's, a, there's the beginnings of a real hunch here that may be very powerful, that very complex things have to manage very concentrated flows of energy. Now, that makes intuitive sense. You think of the difference between, you know, an agricultural society and a modern industrial society, and the difference is the staggering flows of energy from fossil fuels in orders of magnitude greater than those that were available if you're just farming uh, or if you're burning wood, you know. So that's a second possible principle. Um, there may be others, but I'm reluctant to push this too far because I, this is the point at which I retreat into, into saying, look, I'm trying to assemble a story from bits and pieces from different disciplines. Um, but I suspect there are kind of grand unified theories working there to be teased out, maybe by someone more mathematically literate than I am. Can I just go to our current age, the Anthropocene, to the current age now, um, and the impact that man is having on the world around us? Because um, you say that we're probably, well, we are the first species ever to be, in to be the only species in complete control um, of, of the fate of the planet. Um, and one thing I found really quite took me back was the amount of of, of how now domesticated animals are now so much more of the proportion of animals alive and that what wild animals are now coming down to a very, very small, small number. Where do you see the sort of um, challenges facing us around that? What are the challenges? Well, the challenges of, of human beings being the first species of complete yeah. control of the future. Well, in control, I, I, I want to qualify influence. that. It's as if... We're astonishingly powerful, but I sometimes think it's like, you know, a kid in charge of a jumbo jet. Mm -hmm. um, we have astonishing power. We do not know how to control it. And, and one of the most striking measures of that is that we have nuclear weapons. Mm. We have the power, and we often forget it. But I remember living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's very vivid. Um, we have the power to largely destroy much of the current biosphere within 24 hours. That's how powerful we are. No species in four billion years has had that power. Now, I don't think we're yet across what it means to have that power and how to use that power in a benign way. So I resist the idea that we're in control. But the question, how did one species become so powerful in just 200,000 years, is absolutely fascinating, because 200,000 years is an eye blink in the history of the biosphere. And one of the things I love about teaching big history is that I think, so I've got a hunch, that the very wide vision of big history enables you to see things that you can't see from the siloized vision of most research and education. It's a bit like those wonderful Earthrise photographs. Suddenly seeing the Earth as a whole was a revelation for many people of my generation. One of the things you can see through big history, I think, is humanity, clearly. So this is back to the idea of a history of humanity. Um, people in the humanities disciplines have gone on for centuries about what makes humans different, what is distinctive about humans. But I, I have this kind of fantasy that if you stand back, the answer may be very simple indeed. And it's what I call collective learning. So this is one of the few sort of original ideas, I think, in big history. Um, many species have language. We seem to have subtly crossed a threshold, and it may be quite small changes in the wiring of our brains, because chimps are very smart indeed, and we're very close to them genetically. Quite small changes suddenly opened a door to communication that had never existed before. Now, once brainy species can not only learn about their environment, which is what brainy species do, they can share what they've learned with other members of that species, then you have an information accumulating machine, the like of which planet Earth has never seen. And it starts slowly in the Paleolithic, small communities of people sharing information, but the build-up of knowledge 
is very apparent in the Paleolithic. By 10,000 years ago, humans can be found all around the Earth, except in Antarctica. They, they have fitted into a, thousands and thousands of different niches. They have a staggering range of technologies. I mean, I'd hate to be thrown into Ice Age Siberia and told to just get on with it. You know, these people knew how to do it. So this accumulation of information then began to accelerate after agriculture. And today, you know, writing, printing, the internet, computers mean that we are exchanging and accumulating and sharing information at a staggering rate. Now, of course, information got lost as well as shared, but the end result is a staggering amount of knowledge about our environment. Now, with, uh, for a living organism, information about your environment is power because it means you know how to extract resources, how to extract energy, how to provide the energy and resources needed for your populations to grow, for your populations to get more complex. So here are the dense flows of energy that Chaison talks about, and we've tapped into them because of our capacity for collective learning. So if I'm right, then it seems to me that this is something that is not taught anywhere, but really ought to be. Young people need to know that we live at a turning point in the history of planet Earth. This is the first time in four billion years in which a single species has been on the verge of managing the history of the biosphere. So planet Earth has, is turning from a biosphere into a noosphere, a planet that is managed. And so the task of younger people today, who will, my grand, grandchildren will have their hands on the levers in 20, 30 years' time, that is their challenge, to do it well, to learn how to manage a planet. And that's a much bigger challenge than my, my generation ever faced. Again, I've drifted from your question, mm, so I think. Because so. um, uh, reading the book, I, I, you got a real sense that um, evolution was take, takes a long time to do because it's getting that fine balance from information and energy, finding what works, what doesn't work, and the things that don't work probably cost the, the life of the organism. And the, the things that do work, you move on and, and evolve. But we are gathering information now at such an incredible rate. Are, are we gathering information too fast for us to be able to use it? Yeah. Look, I, I, I mean, you asked if I was a, an optimist earlier. Well, um, the optimistic answer, of course, is that buried in all of this information, there must be the information we need to get to a place where we enjoy many of the benefits of the fossil fuels revolution, but can enjoy them without the downside of the fossil fuels revolution, which is frankly the scale of the energy flows. They are so huge now that they are disrupting climate system, you know, the water system, the oceans, the biodiversity. I mean, we all know this now. So can we live a life that's good for humans and for the other species we share this planet with and do it with energy flows that are not undermining fundamental planetary cycles? That's the challenge. I think we have many of the technologies, many of the technological um, answers to those questions are already present. It seems to me more and more that what's missing is the political technology. How do you generate agreement across countries on what needs to be done, on how to use the technology we already have? But again, that's, that's potentially optimistic because the political technology could change very quickly indeed. Um, and and um, that's the challenge for a younger generation. And the optimistic story is, uh, I think we have the resources we need to solve this problem. No guarantee we will, of course. If we don't, then people will look back and say, this is a species that evolved to become too powerful for its own good. This is a sort of sorcerer's apprentice story. Um, Stephen Hawking says we've got to leave the planet if we expect to survive as a species. And there's that other th thought that uh, the reason why we can't detect alien life is there's poss possibly a law that says that when a species gets too powerful, it can't evolve quick enough to cope with that power and blows itself up. 
And that's why there's no alien life. Sorry, Geraint, I'm, I'm, I, I should confess I'm, I'm struggling with the, the sound. It's okay. Um, so, um, I was, so Stephen Hawking says we've got to leave the planet to survive. But the other thing is that alien life doesn't exist because there's a theory that um, alien civilizations evolve to a point of power but don't evolve the means to, to um, control it and destroy themselves. Yep. And it feels a little bit that we're kind of like close, close to that particular threshold. Well, this is the, the SETI project, as you know, has been yeah. going for, I think, 60 years now. They've been looking for signals from space. So far, zilch. And some people are beginning to say, after 60 years, we probably should have seen something. So the question, why have we not seen anything, um, is, is a very interesting speculative question. And that's one possible answer, which some give. Um, and what it implies is that if there are other planets where organisms have evolved capable of something like collective learning, capable of becoming controllers or stewards of their planet, the odds are that they will bugger it up. <laughs> you know, they, will, they will mess it up. And, and that's why we don't see signals. Mm -hmm. Because whenever you get a, really, a, a, a species capable of the sort of things we're capable of, give them 100 or 200 years, and they'll mess it up. <laughs> so it's a very, very depressing theory. Could be true, of course. Um, but even then, I sometimes think, it means that the, the sort of Churchillian challenge for a younger generation is even greater. Can you be the first hominid species in the Milky Way to thread your way through the maze, you know, when, when all the others have failed? But on the other hand, I'm not sure I entirely agree with, with Stephen Hawking on that. I, I, the odds are that the universe is calling with bacterial life. Uh, and we say that because bacterial life popped up so quickly on planet Earth. And there's increasing speculation that it, there may be something like bacterial life even in our own solar system. The tricky thing is large life because it took three billion years to get large organisms on, on, on planet Earth. So what that suggests is that there's lots and lots of bacterial life, lot, lots of prokaryotes, lots of bacteria, lots of E. coli uh, in the universe, or things like E. in the universe, but, like, but, but very few organisms like us. But on the other hand, we now know there are billions and billions of planets. This is new knowledge since I began teaching big history. Probably billions of, uh, maybe 100 billion, Earth-like planets in the Milky Way. I can't resist the thought that at, with those odds, there have to be not just intelligent creatures, elephants are intelligent, dolphins are intelligent, but creatures with this extra quality of collective learning. Um, and uh, we just haven't heard from them yet. Maybe we don't want to, <laughs> because... Um, if they are several hundred years ahead of us technologically and they're not nice people, um, they'll treat us the way we treat sheep. Yeah. Which will not be nice. Yeah. No. Um, but part of what's going to make the difference, um, I guess, is your relationship with Bill Gates. Uh, I suppose having given us all of this information, Mr. Gates is now trying to help us manage it. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I, I taught for eight years in, in the States, and um, I was invited to, to record a series of, of, of lectures on, on big history for an organization called The Teaching Company. This is what they do. They specialize in, you know, in, in, in lectures. And they stumbled on this and gave me a chance to do it. And so I recorded, would you believe, 48 half-hour lectures telling the story of the universe. And um, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, that was 2007. And apparently Bill Gates had, I think, retired as full-time CEO of Microsoft at that point. And he's a voracious reader and, and consumer of lectures. So the story I've been told is that he was working his way through the catalogue of the teaching company and he came across this thing called Big History. And um, anyway, the next thing I knew was I'm in San Diego, I think it was November 2008. So that's during the global financial crisis, just before coming back to Australia. And it's a, it's a Monday, and, and I've got lots of administrative stuff to do, and I'm in a foul mood. I, I'm really not 
not a nice person to meet on that day. And the phone rings. I say, yes, what do you want? <laughs> Very nice woman's voice at the other end says, uh, oh, is this a bad time? I say, no, 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 what do you want? And, and she says, um, oh, look, I can call back later. I said, no, no, please tell me what you want. She says, I'm actually calling from Mr. Bill Gates' office. And I say, oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting interested. Um, and she said, you may not know this, but Mr. Gates is, is a great fan of your work. Uh, wonderful. And um, he's coming down to San Diego. Um, and if you can find some time in your busy schedule to meet Mr. Gates, so I'm very proud of the fact that I got the answer right to that one. And the answer was, yes, <laughs> I can find some time in my busy schedule. Uh, and so anyway, it was arranged. I went out and I met him in, in, a, in a hotel in La Jolla, and I'm ushered to a room. Uh, one of his people knocks on the door, Bill opens the door, and there's just two of us talking for two hours. And I was as nervous as anything. Um, but within five minutes, it was just a great nerdy conversation. You know, he said, I think Bill, Big History is great. I said, I think Bill, Big History is great. He said, I think Big History is great. So we just talked for about two hours about, you know, some of the implications of this. And then at the end of it, he said... Um, so here's the deal. I think this needs to be in schools. He said, I didn't learn much that was new in the details. What I'd never seen before is them all put together. He said, I wish I'd done this at school. I wish it had helped me put everything together. And he said, I would love to see this in schools. And I'd thought for years it needs to be in schools. Um, and now we, we're, gonna, we're working on a primary school syllabus by the moment. By the, by, by the way, which was so exciting. So he said, I would like to fund, if you're interested, a free online high school syllabus in big history that any school that's looking for an experimental syllabus can pick up. And that's how, it, that's how that began. And without that support, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly have gone into the schools, but I, we've lost, I've lost track of how many, but the latest estimates are well over a thousand schools in the US are using this, something like 200 in Australia. I believe there are a few in New Zealand, Hong Kong, China, English speaking schools, because it's still in English. So I love the fact of high schools teaching this stuff. And frankly, my own fantasy is that big history because it can stitch together all the other parts of, of a school curriculum, it can provide, it can do what an origin story does. It can hold everything together. Ought to be taught in every school um, in the world. Um, it won't replace existing syllabi at all, but it'll give students the ability to move from the very broad picture back down to the sort of detail picture and then back and forth, which is what I think all good science does. And what we're not yet doing, particularly in the humanities. Have you encountered any opposition? Yes, and it takes various forms. Um, you know, when I, when, <laughs> I should tell you, when, when I first proposed this to my colleagues, we had a departmental meeting and, and I, I mustered all the arguments, and then they voted yes. And my heart sank, because I thought, oh no, <laughs> now I have to teach a history of the universe. Um, so part is in myself. I have a conventional academic training, and that training says that good scholarship and good research has a clear focus. It, it's not too ambitious. It doesn't overreach. Um, Therefore, something like this must be a bit crazy. Now, I think many academics um, have a sort of instinctive suspicion of, of big history because this is the dominant view today of what good scholarship is. It's, it's highly focused. You know, you're a specialist in a particular area. What I always want to say to them is if you were to spend a bit of, this, of time with this story you'd see that, that as you widen the lens, you lose sight of familiar things. 
but you see new things. So it's like the view from the International Space Station. You, know, you don't see individual humans, which many historians get really worried at this scale, you won't. But you may see deep things about humanity as a whole at this scale. So it, it allows us to widen the lens. And, 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 and it's as if at the moment, I think, a lot of scholarship and education is locked, okay, shift metaphors, locked in second gear. We need to be able to move in first gear and in, and, 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 and in fourth gear as well. So. In, the, in the journey around big history, what's the thing that's most surprised you? In, the, in, in your journey of big history, what's the thing that's most surprised you? I think probably it's how transformative it can be to try to grasp this story, even if you don't grasp it very well. It's been utterly transformative for myself. I mean, I, I still do research at the conventional scale, but I think about that research in new ways. I think about energy flows. I think about increases in complexity. I think about emergent properties. Um, and I see this sometimes in students, um, that I think there are many students who are probably a bit like me. They, they, they went to school. And they find it really hard to understand the details without some kind of framing idea, to put it, you know, Kuhn called these paradigms in the sciences. I think I was like that. I struggled with the details on, on their own. I needed a big framing idea. I think that, I suspect there are many students today who are like that, and they struggle in a school system that, that is so committed to breaking up knowledge into manageable chunks. Um, that presenting them with the, just with the idea that actually there may be a story that crosses all of these different chunks and holds them together can empower students who at the moment are struggling. So I've seen this kind of transformation in, 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 in many students. Let me tell you a wonderful story. When we first began teaching this in schools in Australia, so one of these very brave schools took this on, and this is all very new. And a history teacher who taught for years, he taught um, modern history through rock and roll. He was a great Elvis specialist, wonderful teacher. Um, and he took on teaching a class in big history. So they're teaching about star formation or entropy or something like this. And one of the kids asks him a question. And my friend hasn't a clue about the answer. So as a teacher, you've got a choice at this point. Do you admit that you haven't a clue or do you fudge it? What do you do? Very experienced teacher. He suddenly realized that there was this kid in the class who was a kind of, you know, had low status, um, wasn't performing terribly well, had the reputation of being a science nerd. So he turns to him, and let's, let's say he's called Brian. He says, hey, Brian, can you help me out here? And Brian nails it, just like that absolutely nails it. And my, my friend says, thank you so much, that's great. And Brian became the go-to guy. Um, and my friend said he watched Brian's status change over the year. His body language changed. He had more friends. His work was doing better. So this was one of those, those, those kids who needed this sort of unifying story. And I suspect there are many, many kids who, 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 who are like Brian. I, I, I love that story because it uh, suggests to me something that I think I've been through too, that, that the idea that behind the details of modern knowledge, there is a modern origin story, which is why I've called this origin story, I think is profoundly empowering. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, before we put the house lights up for some questions, um, the one fact I can't quite get my head around is how everything fits into one atom. Into one atom, right at the start. <laughs> my guess is that even the cosmologists can't quite get their mind, <laughs> mind around that. Um, I, I, I don't know how you do that. Do you, do you start with the idea of density and just wind the equations back and back and back? You know, so at the moment, we, we could describe the average density of the universe. You say, okay, let's tighten it up a bit. Let's tighten it up a bit more and keep going and keep going. And the question for the physicists is, is there a point at which the physics goes daft? And the answer is yes, 
but it's probably just before the Big Bang. In other words, you can do good science with a concentration of matter and energy of the, the kind you described. And not only can you do good science, the best science today can tell us with a high level of confidence what sort of things were probably going on in that, that, that tiny thing. And that story is coherent, and it is the starting point for a modern origin story. The Big Bang itself, we don't know. There's a wonderful Terry Pratchett quote, which I, I use here. He says, the current state of knowledge of the origins of the universe is that uh, there was nothing and nothing exploded. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Uh, my wife is in the audience, and she's a huge Terry Pratchett fan, so she'll be very pleased about that one. <laughs> Thank you. Could we have the house lights up, please? In the meantime... <laughs> yeah, they're coming up. They're coming up. Excellent. Good. We've got some... Um, microphones placed around the place so if we could ask you to use the microphones please um, which are here here and here uh, and please could I uh, I'm struggling a bit with the sound yeah, I've even really been struggling with yours so if you could speak really clearly like sure thanks David really interesting you said um, somewhere near the start that um, someone said to you you can't leave us on the cliff edge what is the future but you didn't talk to the future could you share with us what you think the trajectory is. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm going to hedge a bit on that one because um, I felt it was really important to start thinking about the future. In fact, it, it more and more seems to me that the future is something we ought to be teaching about in every school. Uh, politicians think about it, uh, stockbrokers make a killing thinking about the future, and we don't teach it in schools, yet young people are going to need to think about the future. So the question how do you think about the future is really what I tackle. And with these eight thresholds uh, in the Big History Project, what's emerged, and I had nothing to do with this, but students started saying, what is threshold nine? So that's their question. What is the next big change? Um, I, the, the Big History story is not deterministic. It's really important to be clear about this. The asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was a very contingent event. If it had been on a trajectory five minutes earlier or later, the dinosaurs would still be here. We wouldn't be here. And the same is true of the future. We don't know what humans will do in the next 20, 30 years. And yet we have such power that what humans do in the next 20, 30 years will shape the future of the biosphere for perhaps thousands, even millions of years. What we can do is look at the very large trends and try to tease out what are the challenges for, uh, for the next 50 years. And this is, I, I really do think, going to be a turning point in the history of the biosphere. And this is what young people need to know. They need to know what the challenges are, what the challenges are that they, they face. I, I saw the wonderful film about Churchill recently, and Churchill was talking about the challenges that faced England in 1940. And I sometimes think that a sort of Churchillian rhetoric is what is required here. We know what the challenge is, we don't know for sure what the outcome is, but we know that the courageous and exciting thing is to actually fight for a better future. And I think that is the most important message we can give to our students. And we can also say to them that if we think about it, we can sketch out many aspects of that future, but at the moment, the it, it, it's still very sketchy indeed. So this is less talking about what will happen in the future than talking about the challenges that, that, that young people face. I've, I've sort of avoided your question, but... Um, <laughs> my name's Stephen Lloyd. Um, my value position is that if we take um, the rules and the laws of big science and apply them to um, social activity, we may run the risk of uh, becoming metaphysical. Um, you may have answered my question by saying a few minutes ago that your uh, big history isn't deterministic. Uh, but my question is, um, when you were doing your research, um, how did you avoid falling into the, the trap of historicism? Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good and important 
question. Um, and I wouldn't want to guarantee that I have avoided falling into that trap. Um, but the, the, the project, how, how can I put it? The project in a way is very simple. All societies we know of have told origin stories. What's remarkable is in the 20th century, they vanished from the educational repertoire. So what I'm doing is something very old. It's something indigenous people have done. Origin stories existed within the Christian tradition within which Newton was, was trained. So there's nothing new about the idea of big unifying stories. It's just vanished as a project for 100 years. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think of what I'm doing, I'm a historian, I'm not a physicist. I think of what I'm doing is trying to assemble, just take knowledge that already exists, the best knowledge of the cosmologists, of the geologists, of the biologists, and simply stick it all together and see if we have a coherent story. Um, so the third thing is, um, when you get to human history, I talked about this idea of collective learning, that the wriggle room gets greater and greater and greater. This is true in the biological realm, where we know that there's a huge amount of contingency in evolution, you know, genetic mutations. Um, once we talk about collective learning, we're in a realm in which the more deterministic laws of physics or chemistry aren't terribly helpful, really. They're, they're, they're the basis there, but I have a suspicion that this idea of collective learning may itself contain a sort of paradigm way of thinking about human history, which simply consists of the idea that looking at how humans exchange and accumulate information, often in very serendipitous ways, um, often, often losing information, may be one of the keys to understanding many aspects of, of human history. But finally, all the time, we're dealing with determinism and contingency. And the deterministic component in collective learning is if you look over 200,000 years, what's very, very clear is that the total amount of information has increased. And it's increased in ways that cannot be explained just as a matter of contingency. So there are long-term drivers or tendencies in human history as there is in evolutionary history. And to say that, I think, is not to be reductionist or historicist. To deny that there are long-term trends in human history, you know, to go to the extreme of focusing on contingency, I think would be equally crazy. So we have to find some sort of middle ground in which both determine, determines long-term trends and contingency play a role. Most historians, and this is my tribe, actually I have to say, the people I struggle with most when I talk about big history are my own tribe. They're the historians. Because historians are so used to focusing on the specific and the detailed. And as soon as you start talking about large trends, many historians get very twitchy indeed and think you're going to obliterate their details, which of course you're not. I don't know if that's an adequate answer to your question, but, but finding some sort of middle ground is something that's harder in the humanities than it is in the sciences. In the, in the hard sciences, we know you have to negotiate between the big paradigm ideas, such as relativity or quantum physics, and, and the detailed experiments that will test or justify or modify those ideas. In the humanities, we don't really have big paradigm ideas, so it's much harder to negotiate that relationship. Anything up in the gods? Can you summarise for me uh, the five key things that you have seen from adopting a big history approach as opposed to dividing it up into little bits? Five trends. Um, well, you said to us that you see things that you don't otherwise see. Yes. Well, one of them in, in, I mean, we can see trends at multiple scales. We can see them at, at, at the scale of the universe. So at the scale of the universe, I think the trend that is most apparent is, and it's one of the central themes of this story, the universe begins very simple. Most of the universe today is incredibly simple. But 
What happens within the universe, and a lot of this is very contingent, is slightly different environments appear. And in some environments, you have what we call the right Goldilocks conditions. That's another piece of terminology that we, 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 that's quite helpful for more complex things to appear. So in pockets in the universe where the conditions are just right, more complex things have appeared. And then in pockets within those pockets, so in very privileged environments, more complex things have appeared, such as a rocky planet. It looks as if rocky planets at the right distance for their suns are fantastically rich environments for complex chemistry. So it, that's why life could evolve in these sort of environments. So that tendency for more complex things to appear in very particular environments, as the universe itself gets more diverse, is one of the long trends we see at the scale of 13.8 billion years. On the scale of human history, I've just talked about what I think is probably the most important long-term trend, which is towards more and more accumulation of information. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not assuming this is a good thing or a bad thing. What it does do is make our species collectively more and more powerful. So you compare what we know of Paleolithic communities 200,000 years ago with the staggering power of collective humanity today. And there's a very long trend there. Now, if you look more closely, of course, you're going to see ups and downs. You're going to see periods in which information seems to be lost, in which there seems to be reverse, reversal. But the long-term trend is towards that. Go to another scale, the biosphere. Uh, even in evolution, there are trends. One is towards bigger things. Um, one may be towards things with larger brains. Now, this is not absolutely clear, but, the, the, but neurological systems have developed in many different, different branches of biology. So, if you look for them, I think these large trends are there, but then you, when you move back to the detail, of course, um, it may be that you need a different sort of knowledge to understand what's going on at a very particular time and place. Thank you. Um, gentleman here is waiting. About, uh, you talked about the need or the possibility of humanity making benign decisions about how we use this incredible power that we have over the biosphere. And you talked about uh, what being missing is perhaps the political technology uh, to make those decisions. That all implies um, some kind of values or um, moral or philosophical base. And I wondered if big history has revealed anything about the development of those things through humanity. Yep. Um, the best I can say is I, I've been fascinated by this, this question of if I'm right in thinking that big history is a kind of modern version of the origin stories that you found in all societies, then it ought to be saturated with meaning, and many of those meanings are going to be deeply ethical and, and moral. So many scientists resist this idea, and I think they resist it because they're afraid that if they look too hard for meaning or ethics in their science, the, the, the meaning and the ethics will warp their science. So that's a kind of methodological principle, which is quite a good one. But if you try to completely empty science of ethics, then I think you end up saying some quite crazy things. Why do societies put so much money into science? Because they expect things from science. So even modern science is saturated with ethics. So, so that's one, one answer to all of this. The story ought to be full of meaning. Then the second is that trying to think through what sort of meanings. There are many different sorts of origin stories. The, the, the Christian origin story, the, the, the monotheistic ones, are dominated by creator God who supplies meaning. The universe has meaning, it has purpose, it has goals. But there are also some origin stories, I, I think of some forms of early Buddhism, in which that's not true. The universe is just there. And the moral rules are not embedded in the universe. They're created by humans. And, and I think a modern origin story is going to belong to that category of story. And you're going to ask, 
what sort of moral rules do humans generate in order to live together and in order to do the things that all biological entities want to do, which is to survive and reproduce. So in, 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 term, in my own terms, this is a story about my grandchildren. I'm a biological entity. I care about them and I care about them and their generation. And I, and, and I think that is to some extent unavoidable as a human. So for me, that's what drives it. Can we think of a world that will be benign for my grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their friends in 50 or 100 years' time? Now, of course, it's quite possible to be a kind of Gaia fundamentalist and say, who cares? Uh, you know, I've been told this many times. Who cares? The cockroaches will survive. And that's absolutely true. Um, the cockroaches will survive, but all I can say is I care and I suspect the vast majority of humans care about trying to build a more benign future. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.